0: Welcome to Everyday Buddhism, making every day better by applying the proven tools found in Buddhist concepts. Welcome to Episode 68 of Everyday Buddhism, making every day better. In this episode, I talk with Vanessa Sasan, a professor of religious studies at Marianapolis College where she has been teaching since 1999. I so enjoyed this conversation. Vanessa is delightful to talk with. She's a storyteller and she's funny. So you'll easily connect with her as a novelist and a Buddhist scholar. Sasan is the author and editor of a number of academic books, including a collection entitled Little Buddhas, Children and Childhood in Buddhist Texts and Traditions. And her most recent academic book, um, is scheduled to appear soon, um, and it's an edit- edited volume entitled Jewels, Jewelry, and Other Shiny Things in the Buddhist Imaginary, published by University of Hawaii Press. In our conversation today, we are talking about her latest non-academic book, Yashodara and the Buddha, a fascinating exploration into the story of the Buddha through the voice of his wife, a character previously relegated to side notes in the Buddha's story. I wholeheartedly agree with some of the glowing reviews of the book, including this one from the Montreal Review of Books. For many lay readers coming to Vanessa Sassan's powerfully imagined new novel, Yashodara, the nearest previous equivalent might be Herman Hesse's Siddhartha. Thanks to Montreal scholar Sassan, we now have a book that is not only an ideal complement to Hesse, but very much its own thing. And then this one from Wendy, Wendy Doniger of the University of Chicago Yashodara is a kind of Buddhist Arabian Nights that swirls around the story of the Buddha from the illuminating point of view of his wife. Anchored in Sasan's scholarly knowledge of the text, this novel is a work of truly imaginative fiction that captures the diverse spirit of the ancient Indian narrative world. I hope you'll continue to listen to my conversation with Vanessa for a wonderful new, and I think you'll find unexplored journey into the Buddha's story. The conversation starts now. Hello, Vanessa. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. I've really been looking forward to this. Um, we've, We've gone around a few times trying to get a schedule and now we have one. So here we are. So thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Wendy. I'm so glad to be here. Um, I shared your bio in the intro to our conversation, but I'd like you to share a little more if you could. I especially interested about your, even though I've read more about you, my audience has no clue uh, about your personal and professional background and how it intersects with Buddhism um, and maybe more about this is what this is just my take, how you felt the call, to write this book. And I say call because from reading the book, the literary result, it really feels like a true calling for you. And I might be putting too much on this, but um, what, you know, a little bit about your background and how you got uh, propelled into writing the story.
1: Um, it, I mean, it sounds a little haughty to say a call, but it did feel I did feel a very strong pull to write this book. Um, It was a very emotional thing for me to do and it was a very big, it felt like at the time it felt like an intellectual risk. It felt like an emotional risk to write this book. It was very different from anything I'd done before. So in that sense, there was a leap that I was definitely making and I was kind of looking under my feet all the time and there was no ground there. So I was definitely kind of (laughs) floating for a while, not quite sure where I'd land. So I can appreciate the call question. Um, so my background is I'm a scholar. Uh, I was trained as a scholar of comparative religion a long, long time ago. (laughs) And, um, I've been focused mostly, I did my PhD in comparative religion, but then kind of focused in on Buddhism because I realized that comparative religion was much harder than I had anticipated (laughs) because you have to specialize in so many languages all at the same time. And I just couldn't pull it off. So I pulled back a little bit from that every once in a while, I dip into comparative work, but my work has really been focused for about 20 years on early Buddhist stories. Uh, That's where my passion has been. And I've been thinking about and writing about the Buddha's life story in some manifestation or another for the past 20 years as a scholar. Um, And a couple of years ago, that's when that bizarre call or that leap that I made happened. Um, I had finished writing a kind of very classical academic volume. Uh, It was an edited volume, but it was a really big job and it took me quite a few years. It was um, a lot of work, a very big project. It was very satisfying. Uh, I finished that job and I had this moment, this kind of very existential question where I thought, my goodness, I have been, I think at that point, must've been about 15, 17 years. I have been writing in the same way for a very long time and I have been thinking in the same way for a very long time, that you you get trained as a scholar to rate in a very particular way to ask particular types of questions. And much more specifically, you get taught to try to stand away from what you're studying so that you have to take Mm -hmm. a kind of clinical distance. And it's very helpful because it helps you study things in a particular way. It helps you assess things in ways that if you're too engaged, you get entangled. We all know that objectivity is impossible, but there's a, a kind of distance that you try to master as a scholar. So you're always staying far from your material. And so whenever I studied the Buddha's life story, I felt like I was supposed to stay far and watch it almost as though I have nothing to do with it. Like I'm just watching this thing on a stage and I'm just going to you know, assess it like a scientist and it has its advantages and I've benefited from those advantages. I saw things I wouldn't have seen otherwise, but there was that kind of existential moment after finishing that big book where I thought, is this all I know how to do? Like, is it, like, do I only know how to sit in the audience and stare at something that's on the stage? What if I jumped on the stage <laughs> that was kind of my question. <laughs> like, What would happen if I closed the gap of the clinical distance? What if I let myself get involved was really the question. And it was a really scary question because I had spent so much time trying to think from afar. I don't know if I'm being too abstract here, but it's really what the- No,
0: no, no, no. This is just what I was looking for. Yeah,
1: great. So I wanted to get close. I wanted to know the story in a much more intimate way. I wanted to feel the story of the Buddha's life. I wanted to know what it felt like for him to do what he did, for all the characters around him to watch him do what he did. what was that because so much of buddhism is about modeling the buddha's life story everything comes down to him right it's the teachings he spoke it's the things that he did his life story is the model so then we you know in in the outside world watching him think okay when do i engage with suffering he engaged with suffering so what was my experience of suffering when did you understand that you had to let go right just as he did so much of that is us watching his story and modeling our life stories on his and almost reshaping how we think of our own lives based on what we read in his story. And so his story is kind of everything. And yet I'm yeah. always staying far from it. And so I I wanted to dive in and kind of become a character in his story and see what it felt like to get really really close.
0: That's fascinating. And and I get that, you know, as a writer myself, I I get that like call to do something a little different, yet the absolute terrifying (laughs) (laughs) feeling that comes over when you over you when you think you might want to try that and then you don't. In my case, I don't. So,
1: (laughs) (laughs) It really challenges all your fears, right? Because you get good at something. And we all I, I imagine know this on some level or another we get good at whatever it is that we get used to doing and we know how to do it yeah and we know our habits and we know kind of like driving the same way to work every day like we know how to do it we don't even have to think <laughs> about it yeah and so yeah. we just do it and i felt like that's what was happening to my life because i was just doing what i'd gotten accustomed to doing
0: and yeah. I, I suddenly
1: wanted to know What else can I do? How else can I see things? Like, what's the other route to work? Like, how do? What will I see if I drive on a different road? What will happen if I take a different route to work? Was really my question, and it was terrifying because what if I get lost? What if I see something I don't like? What if I I see that something I do like and I stop and I don't go all the way to work? (laughs) Like, I mean, it was just this. It was a really existential challenge to my life of what if I did it differently today.
0: Yeah, I guess that's what comes through when you read the book. I, it's, I this is, you know, this is there's no words for how I feel about that. But because I like I said, I felt something when I read the book. I felt that kind of involvement. That you know, yeah. maybe it was a maybe there maybe your fear came through. I don't know. <laughs> it was, yeah. Oh my god. Uh, well, no, it just it just felt so real, and yet, it, you know, I don't know. It's uh, and I and I kept saying, well, it's real because she's a scholar and she knows all this stuff, so that's the real part. Um, yet it she's making a lot of stuff up, but that's the non-real part. And how in the heck do you do both of those things? And, <laughs> you know that's as a writer <laughs> yeah well and we'll get to that but i wanted to say um in the in the review of the of your book in the times literary supplement in Lo- of london uh it it, it says uh sasan offers an alternative re- version of the buddha's early life and renunciation Retelling such as this can destabilize or demystify a beloved narrative, but they can also give it new life, and that is what Sasan achieves here. Now, I agree with that completely, and I was talking to you prior to our recording that um, I was a little surprised in the the way in which I responded to the book because it was kind, of, it was sort of a a. I, I, as I mentioned, I was i a, I'm a practicing Buddhist. I've been practicing Buddhism for three decades. Um, and so I didn't think I could like have any, like nothing could, well, it's like, I knew my way to work and I didn't think sure. anything could distract me really. Um, I just would think, okay, a nice little story or something. And, um, and, uh, I was a little destabilized, um, in that, um, it, it changed the way I looked at the Buddha. Um, it's like I thought, and this is a, this is a question you can't answer, but it's, I think it's a nice question to pose for people to think about it and might attract them to reading the book, is what if the Buddha actually did go out of the palace and saw suffering like his wife, Yashodara? She experienced suffering. Yeah you know, well, uh, directly later, but as a, as a girl, she experienced suffering and because she was of the world, whereas um, Siddhartha wasn't of the world. He was kept away from the world. So had he, I mean, I know this is a story, but it it essentially, essentially it's a myth and it's a reality. And if he had seen that, then maybe, you know, like the rest of us, he wouldn't maybe be so preoccupied with the sort of what seemed to me like an academic interest in suffering, right? It was very removed in some ways, because he was removed from the feeling of it. And when he first felt the feeling, he was overwhelmed. So that's what I will share with you. That's what got to me. And I, I keep thinking about that. Now I keep thinking about that. Um, and I don't know what the scholarly background is to that. If you like is, is,
1: um, he was removed from suffering. And so therefore when he engaged with it, it was, it was such a disturbing kind of destabilizing experience.
0: Yeah. Like it was like, I'm, I'm thinking of it in a sort of a psychological, it was like trauma, you know what I mean? And there's a quote about that uh, later on, which I'll share, but you know, it it, is, is I mean, I think, I don't know I never thought about that before, really, it never occurred to me.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, but I think that that's, um, it it always seemed to me an obvious reading of the tradition because you have so many texts that tell us that the, the king was terrified. So we, you know, the early part of the buddha's life story for the readers who don't know. Is that after he's born, he has astrologers, the king has astrologers come. There's different versions of this. In some cases, you know, a sage comes in from the forest and gives him a prophecy. In others, the astrologers are called, whichever version we get. We eventually end up with some kind of a prophecy or some kind of a reading of the future. And the reading of the future um, that the king receives about his newborn son is that he will either become a great king, the kind of king that no one has seen in 10,000 years, that will make peace with his neighbors, that everyone will be fed, etc., etc. or he will become a great religious teacher, the kind of which we have not seen in 10,000 years. And so either way, this child is destined for greatness, but it will either be through the path of the world or it will be through the path of religious homelessness. And the king panics because he can't have his son take the path of religious homelessness he needs his son to become the king and so he hides his son in the palace to ensure he never sees suffering and this is what's so interesting is that the first insight that suffering is what leads us to contemplation is actually the father's so that the father realizes there is a connection if you see suffering you tend to become more philosophical because we start Uh. to wonder what you know what more is there to this life than just material reward and so he has this insight, and he says, if my son doesn't see suffering, he'll never contemplate and want to become a religious homeless teacher, and Ah. so he builds around the future Buddha, around Siddhartha, he builds a palace that kind of locks him in, so that he never sees old age suffering, you know, sickness or death, and therefore never wonders, is there more for me to think about than just material reward, right, and so when the prince wants to leave the palace, he actually has people removed according to some texts, right? So there's a very famous text by called the Buddha Charita, an early second century Sanskrit text where he literally has all the sick and the infirm moved off the road so that the prince just sees beautiful people. So it's kind of like a Hollywood, you know, parade (laughs) is what the prince is raised in. everybody's Botoxed and everybody's beautiful and nobody, (laughs) you know, and and, and there's no sense that the world is eventually going to get hard right? And he only gets, he gets fed and he has beautiful clothing and he has multiple kinds of meals at his disposal all the time. So he's very, very spoiled, really. He's very protected. He lives in a bubble and he has to actively break that bubble to get the answer to the questions that he finds himself nagging, but it takes a long, long time, right? So this, according to some accounts, he's 29 years old when he finally leaves the palace to go see the What's out there and engages with suffering, and even then, many of the texts will say that the gods put the suffering people in his path so that they make sure he sees suffering because otherwise, it would still be removed.
0: That right? explains the 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 gods the gods in the story because that was going to be another question. So yeah, thanks for yeah, that. Yeah, so
1: all so in that sense, you really do have him living in a bubble, whereas most people don't and maybe it's only by having that really extreme experience that his insight is gonna be so sharp because it's so fresh. Whereas the rest of us get dulled almost by suffering. We see suffering yeah. every day and we don't think about it so much. He never saw it. So when he did see it, it was overwhelming.
0: Yeah, and, and, and also he was older. And so <laughs> he had, he, there was a, he brought a different uh, mental capacity to- Sure. The understanding of that, or maybe the traumatic effect of that. I mean, really, that's yeah. essentially what it seemed like. Now, that, that really is the part that got me. The other part um, that off that quote from um, the the Times Literary Supplement, um, it, it was the beloved narrative. I, yeah. I I know I've heard as I'm sure you have. There's uh, especially with people. I explained to you earlier about my audience. I think many of them are new to buddhism you know they're they're coming to it um as an alternative they're coming to it especially since the pandemic i think my audience grew from the from the new to buddhism sure. so, yeah. i mean we need something you know to help We're suffering. I mean, we're, suffering. <laughs> know, sure. we're suffering yeah and um but many people ask the question and i you know, I, I I come up with alternative answers, and none of which seem very good. But um, is is that bitter? They get they get a bitter rejection of the Buddha as somebody, as a, a, a per, even a person they should respect, let alone a teacher they should follow because of what he did. He left his wife and his kid, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and, you know, he, he they, you know, the, the government would be after him for child support and in, 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 in this day and age. So it's like, I get that this is shocking to people. Um, and, and, and there's this, you know, pr- profound, and also people who, co- who come from more of a secular background, they, there's no understanding of, renunciation and I don't even when I teach Buddhism as from an everyday perspective I don't even use the word renunciation or the 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 concept of it in the same way as some people would I I use it more of a authentic becoming of who you are uh, you know an understanding of who you are which is essentially what the Buddha did but renunciation is is harsh and so people think why should I follow this jerk? Right. Um, So um, do you think your version of the story helps to answer that question or further push it into the esoteric and mystic?
1: Well, I'm hoping I I don't know if I can ever answer the question. Um, See, I can't either. (laughs) But I, I do have a bit of an answer now. But I do think what this book really has as its heart is to put that question at the center because that's what, that's what it was for me. So the biggest question that I have struggled with for the last you know 20 odd years, 25 years, whatever it's been that I've been thinking about and studying Buddhism has been this question of what do we do with this character, right? And yeah. with this person who left his wife, left his child, absentee father, left the kingdom, right? Who doesn't know life the way I know life. I mean, he lived in a palace, like what, what does he have? Like, (laughs) right. There's so, so removed from him that it's infuriating. How does he (laughs) then teach me about suffering? Like when he lived in a palace for crying out loud. So exactly. Right. (laughs) So there's definitely a kind of fundamental frustration. That was why I needed to write this book as opposed to another book is that when I thought about (laughs) writing this book, I thought, I knew I wanted to write about Yashodara, about the wife of the Buddha. Um, And what i wanted to do is get close to it because I needed to understand this. Like I actually needed to wrestle with this question for myself. And maybe that's what you were finding is so kind of strong is that it's my own personal existential wrestling match with the story. I needed to go right to the heart of the part that upsets me. And what upsets me in Buddhism is what upsets, like you just said so many other people is that he did this. He just dropped the ball and walked away. And I don't know how to relate to that especially as someone who chose to be married and to have a child, it's even worse, right? Because I think, well, so right. I'm not a good Buddhist now because I didn't drop the ball and walk away. Like, what is this? What am I supposed to think of all of this? So the whole book really is that question. And so I don't know if it's going to help anyone answer it. But what, I'm, what I do with this book is I put that question in the middle It's right. Is that this is the question. And this is what we have. If we're going to take his life story seriously, I do think this is a major question to wrestle with. I don't know what the answer is, but I'm going to wrestle with it. I don't know who wins the fight, (laughs) but I need, I need to fight it out. And so while I was, so the story for the readers who don't fully know it what's the more I looked into her story, the more upset I became (laughs) Because not only is Yeshodra his wife in his final lifetime, but when you look back and you read kind of a lot of these early Buddhist texts, and they're very complicated and confusing, and I don't blame any reader who can't make heads or tails of all the different Buddhist texts that are floating around. But when I go through those, um, one of the things that comes up over and over again is the fact that she was, you know, Buddhists believe in reincarnation and multiple lives. and so. The Buddha's life story, as we tell it, is actually the last life story after hundreds of thousands of lifetimes before. And so the yeah. Buddhist story is actually much longer than this last story. He's been working towards achieving awakening for lifetimes. And, we, and the tradition tells some of those previous life stories as part of its history. And so when Buddhists tell the story of the Buddha, they don't just tell when he was born in this last life, they go much further back in history. And what's interesting is when they tell their past life stories, um, whether you believe this is history or not is kind of beside the point. It's how the tradition tells its stories. Right. When they tell those stories, at the end of every past life story, there's a kind of little explanation paragraph. And in that explanation paragraph, it says, This character was my mother, my mother and my last life was my mother in my past life, my, you know, the father in this past life was also my father, my last life, right? Like he identifies all the characters. And you realize that all the characters in his last life have been floating around him for lifetimes, that they've all been working towards achieving awakening, all moving together as a collective. He didn't do this as an individual. He did this with a unit, a family with him lifetime. He's, He's a lot less individualistic than we've Kind of reckoned with all this time and one character who's always there is yashodara right now she's yeah. often called rahul Amata. that's a then we're going to get into like technical discussions we don't need but basically his wife in his last life was his wife lifetime after lifetime after lifetime so she was with him forever he could have had a you know so many other wives but he right. it's always her And so she's there taking rebirth with him, always partnering with him, their lifetime after lifetime after lifetime. Then in their final life, the the literature tells us, in in Chinese literature, Tibetan literature, Pali, Sanskrit, it's all over the map. All these traditions say, they took their last lives together, that they're reborn at the same time again, so that you really have a sense of their connection. And so they take their last life together again, They grow up in the same kingdom again. They get married again. So you have a sense that she has been really beside him for way longer than any of us has been with our spouses, Um, really connected to him. And then after marrying her, after being with her for years in the palace, where I imagine she's locked in with him because the king doesn't let his son out. So she's kind of imprisoned herself with him in this bubble. In the middle of the night, on the night she gives birth. I mean, this is the, this is the mind-blowing moment, right? So it's even worse than we realize. It is worse. Well, yeah, yeah. She's it is been worse. with him for so long, right? And so then, the night she gives birth, she—sorry—the <laughs> night she gives birth, he goes to see the four sights. He has this big moment of awakening that, oh my goodness, there is suffering. I have to go and figure this out. Comes back and leaves and, and doesn't even see, So the one text that really kind of broke my heart is this fifth century polytext text called the Jataka Nidana. And in that text, when that scene is described, he comes back from seeing the four sights, and he goes to her room and she's sleeping with her newborn child because she has been giving birth while he's out thinking about stuff. She's alone in the palace bleeding and ripping her body apart, giving birth to their child without anesthesia and is now lying in bed with her newborn son and she's sleeping and the prince comes back and he stands at the threshold of their bedroom and he will not step in, he just stands at the threshold. It's almost as though that threshold where the door is is kind of this invisible marker between one world and the other. And so he stands at the threshold and he looks at her and he looks at his newborn son and the text says that he thinks to himself, if I touch my son, what she wants to do, she will wake up. And if she wakes up, I will not be able to go. And so then he decides, okay, I won't touch my son. And he turns around and he leaves and he gallops away, like literally charging through the palace gates. He never even tells her. And so she wakes up the next morning with a newborn by her side in a palace that's like a bubble where she lives with her in-laws and she finds out her husband is gone and he has left her behind and there's no way of reaching him right it's over like he's gone
0: that was that was so emotional that part that was you really captured that it it was it was i mean you felt how siddhartha felt when he was looking in from the threshold you you could you you could feel the angst but at the same time when he made that decision to leave yeah it was infuriating i mean totally for me just left I, yeah just left it's like yeah i mean because he had because you the, your your um uh, You explained it the way he was thinking that you know I'll I'll be attached, um, and and then that whole and and then so I can't do it, so I'm not going to be attached, which is like I I wanted. I was like, you coward! You know,
1: (laughs) jeez. So that's so that's the part that I had to wrestle with. I had to get to a point where I could write that and not be angry at him anymore. And that was my challenge for the whole book, is how do I get to the point of writing this and not feel angry with him anymore? And I did, I realized as I wrote that, that, I mean, I had to rewrite it many times until I was clear in my head about it, but I, I came to realize that I think what the tradition, this is my answer to the question, what I think the tradition is saying is not don't be attached and don't care or whatever like the fact that it gives you that moment where he wants to touch the child was my save, my salvation because for me it showed me that he did have angst that it yeah. was there was a torturous moment there of what do i do and he made his choice and i thought maybe this is what the story is is that there are moments in our lives and there are some of us in those moments in our lives where our lives are going to ask us to do something that goes against every convention. And that's gonna disappoint everybody we love. But if, if you're called, kind of using the language that you started with, right, right. If you feel that there is something so important that you have to do with your life, then you just have to do it. And I, I think that's the answer, is that he had to do this. And it disappointed everybody But it had to be done. And there's something so profound in that. And there's something so profound that the tradition tells the story, telling us that everybody was heartbroken. It doesn't, you know, water it down, right? Yeah. The tradition tells you he is leaving behind his wife, his newborn child, who he longs to touch and be a father for, leaves his father, who was raising him to be the next king. So leaves a kingdom the subjects, the throne, he leaves everybody, but is that not the most profound and most familiar story in the world is that sometimes that's what we're supposed to do and how yeah. have the courage to actually go.
0: Yeah. It, yeah. You're right. And then there is, there is a, 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 a real lifeness and everydayness to that yes feeling both sides of that feeling which you i mean the rage of yashodhara is is palpable in your book by the
1: way it <laughs> up and she's pretty mad yeah yeah the <laughs> rage take you, it
0: well. <laughs> you know not at all and it takes a while but uh uh it, it There is something, you know, something that we can all identify with a little bit, I think probably never to that extent or not generally to that extent. So so maybe that uh, helps explain renunciation. And maybe that's when I explain it as an authentic becoming. Sometimes you just have to do what you are, even if it's not what everybody else wants you to do.
1: You know, that's where it led me is that the yeah. only way I could understand him and this radical, crazy, awful thing that he did <laughs> was that it had to be done. And in the end, it does lead to more goodness in the world, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's the Buddhist story. Whether you agree with that historically or not is, is separate. But at the Buddhist understanding of what he did was that it was for the benefit of all beings. So it's not a selfish, I'll do what I want and to hell with everybody. It's... <laughs> There is such an important thing that I need to do for the benefit of others that I might have to not do the smaller things that are for the benefit of these separate individuals. Right. it's, It's very powerful that way. So it's not just a selfish, I feel like partying. It's not, it's not that at all. It's a very profound sacrifice to do something more vast than it than we normally do with our days right and so in that sense it is a very extraordinary story but i think yeah. we have to do the work to realize we have to understand her pain to understand what he did and i think we've been missing that
0: yeah yeah i think that that put it in stark relief in a way that you don't look at it i mean you you, you knew the buddha left uh or siddhartha left before yeah. he became the buddha right. um and, and 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 like i said that irked everybody um, that I know of, including myself. But then again, in knowing how she comes to terms with it and what he felt from this fictional portrayal, which I, you know, it, it does help put put it uh, in a way that maybe we can understand because we've done something similar um maybe just not as much um you know my personal I explain this to you that I I this this book gave me a lot of feelings and I urge everybody to read it because like I've been I'm a a long-term practicing Buddhist and I I never thought I'd ever change my relationship to the story or I didn't even think about it actually I just you know but when I came to read the book I really never thought Well, this is going to change me in any kind of way in my relationship to Buddhism. Um, But it did make me rethink a lot of things. Um, And my personal experience with the book is that uh, I, I did feel that it so therefore gave it new life. I mean, it's, that's why I urge people to read the story and do what I always urge people to do from a Buddhist practice perspective. Buddhism isn't about answering questions. It's not that doesn't give you the answers, but just asking more questions of how you relate to the story, what does it mean to you, you know, all that, like you just explained. Um, And so in deferring to you as a scholar and your research and your academic credentials, I I felt really buoyed uh, in my Buddhist journey um, by the woman-centered perspective. Um, I often stopped in my reading actually, to reflect on the wisdom and strength shared by Yashodara, which is the Buddha's wife? And by the way, if anyone doubts Vanessa's cred, street cred, her credentials, um, refer to referred to the extensive thirty-page section of notes and study questions at the end of the book. Never had a fiction book with that. And it was a bit
1: of an odd thing. <laughs> yeah, was enough by myself.
0: <laughs> I know that was clearly the academic impulse overcoming you. um, but
1: uh, clearly, but it was it was helpful to me. I liked it. And I okay. la- go Sorry. ahead. Sorry. Well, the end notes are really important. I was going to mention that um because i I wrote the novel without any notes. But after I finished it, it was only after it was like done, um, and I actually had a publisher, and I was about to send it off to the publisher. And then I stopped and I thought, I'm going to get one question a thousand times. I'm sure of it. And that is going to be, how, how do we know any of this? Where is yeah, your exactly. story coming from? So before I sent it, I wrote to my publisher and I said, wait. <laughs> <laughs> and I took about a month or two where I just, my husband was going to kill me. I literally pulled all my books off my shelves. The books were all over the house because I went back and every chapter I went through carefully and I thought, okay, this idea came from this text this scene was inspired by this te- and i literally mapped out for the reader every chapter so that they can see what i did so that they can see this section comes from this book and this section comes from that book and this text comes from here and that text comes from there this part there are no texts i had to make this up because it doesn't appear anywhere that i know of and so that you can actually follow in the end notes what it's like the it's like the the background map, like the backstage, <laughs> you're like seeing where all this comes from, so that the reader can really figure out for themselves what to do with what I've done. And so, y- everything's there that the reader needs to then think about how I've put all of this together. And so, you'll know this I made up, but this, if you want to see this scene, it comes from this Sanskrit text, and this scene comes from that text. And so, that'll give the reader a lot more kind of independence to think about what they think. I did, and it hands it back over to the reader in that sense.
0: Yeah, and it, it, it and it answers the question, which I'm sure people have: is how dare she write this book? What is? She...
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know,
0: <laughs> you know, I would think that maybe that's sure. just my judgmental nature.
1: You know? No, I think that's well. That's a whole other, you know, that's a whole other question. But it's a really important question, especially. Um, I don't know if you wanna segue into this, but as we are moving towards a world of increasing fundamentalism, that's a really serious question. Oh, And Buddhist Buddhist fundamentalism is real. And I don't know how much uh, of your audience is familiar with it, but the more you travel in Buddhist countries, the more it becomes quite familiar. And the kind of rising angst that we're seeing, everywhere with regard, I mean, we see rise of Christian fundamentalism in the US, we see Jewish fundamentalism getting more intense in Israel, we see Hindu fundamentalism in India, Islamic fundamentalism in many parts of the world, like this is something that is growing everywhere and it's getting worse. Um, there's a rise of nationalism and a rise of fundamentalism as the world gets more unstable that I think we will see get increasingly worse over the next decades as uh, we find climate refugees clamoring at doors and. We're in for a bit of a ride um and buddhist fundamentalism is uh definitely part of that that trajectory uh, a lot of i think new buddhists in the west might find that odd or think that buddhists can't be fundamentalists but there actually is quite a bit of it
0: oh um, yeah yeah it's, actually, it's here. It's, Sorry, yeah
1: it's, yeah, it's oh, here it's
0: it's it's, it's, it's 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 i run into it a lot i actually you know i i get terrible comments on my Apple yeah. podcast. It's that how dare I question, uh, how dare I repurpose this, right. uh, text, uh, to make it something applicable to a- everyday life. You, you know, it's like, in, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to For make sure. peace with them, but, um, you, you you're right you it's a wonderful way to go there right to 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 answer that question how dare she how dare she because she knows what she's talking about
1: well i don't know that it would i mean if somebody's going to be angry there's very little that like it, the decision's probably taken before oh gonna, yeah yeah so it's never going to stave off everything but um it's certainly a way of kind of engaging that conversation for those who are going to be willing to I didn't really just do it for that. I did it really because I wanted students and readers to be able to look at the material themselves. That being said, I also have a very heightened awareness that this question of how dare she um, is a question that's growing. And part of it is really understandable um, with histories of white supremacy and colonialism and all the distortions that we've done in the West to traditions in India and Asia and East Asia, um, we deserve it. And so we have to be very careful about cultural appropriation and be really transparent about what we're doing and really thoughtful about it. And so that yeah. was also part of it. And then there was the last part of for the fundamentals out there who want to attack if they choose to, this is my answer if you care to read it. So there's like a whole kind of, you know, kind of conversation that's behind the surface there that I think is really important because I don't want to culturally appropriate something inappropriately. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to take on a voice that's not mine to take. However, that being said, one and this is something that my introduction addresses directly and the preface to the introduction does as well by another scholar is um, when I ask myself those questions, am I allowed to write this book? How dare I? Can I do this mm. or can I not yeah. do it? Again, I had to wrestle with that question. For a while, I thought I might not publish this book because maybe I'm not allowed to do this. I'll just write it because I want to do it. But then one of the ways in which I kind of answered that question for myself was that this is what Buddhist history has been doing for 2,500 years, is that wherever Buddhism goes in the world, it gets adopted by that particular place. It takes on the language. It takes on the traditions, the customs. buddhism starts in northern india um it moves to sri lanka and right away in sri lanka all the texts get translated in singhalese and all kinds of rules are adapted to meet sri lankan needs that are not indian at all then buddhism goes to china and china translates everything into chinese and tells stories from a chinese perspective and so for 2500 years buddhism keeps telling its stories in different ways and in different languages and so when i kind of put that together in my head I realized the answer to my question was, I'm invited to do this, that so this is what the tradition is built on, is for each generation to engage with the literature and then say it in their own voices. Yeah, I think that's really important, too.
0: Yeah, I um, actually I was I it was a question I was going to talk about or something I was going to bring up later on. But you 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 segued into it really nicely here and. Um, uh you, 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 I, I heard you on another podcast, by the way, uh, the Bloomsbury oh, yeah. uh, academic podcast, which is, re- it was a really good interview. Um, and, and I liked how you said it was, um, because it is true. I mean, I come, I practice in primarily a Mahayana, um, tradition, and there are a lot of people from the Theravadin tradition and, uh, people who are fundamental from where their culture is. And, um, you know, and, and there, there, there are people who grow up Buddhist and don't know anything about Buddhist texts really. They, I mean, it's, it's sort of like people who grow up fundamental, fundamentalist Christians who don't know much about Christian texts, but the point you made in this uh, other podcast episode was that the you know was your comment about how buddhist textual foundation is kind of open-ended and since it has multiple texts and not one bible and that's the thing it's like the mahayana story is totally different like i mean it's like it almost seems like you're talking about something else entirely um and i get that question all the time well you know buddhism says in uh, in in the uh in the in the in the sutras that you shouldn't do this and it's like well you have to explain to them well that's from um the text that's talking to monks and nuns and you know it's so complicated because everybody's looking for the bible they, and right. i get that question all the time what's the buddhist bible and it's like well sure. or oh, that's
1: our or, habit right that's the western yeah. habit we're used to religions operating with the bible so we look to other traditions and go where is it and it's very hard to get used to a tradition that operates in a different way but it doesn't have a central text. It has a library.
0: Yeah, and exactly, and and it's like I actually get constantly. I did a whole podcast episode uh, about this. I it was called "What Does Buddhism Say About?" Because I get that question all the time. Sure. What does Buddhism say about? And I always say, "Well, Buddhism is like not one thing." So please, I, we I can't even answer that question. Um, yeah, so it's hard
1: because as you know, especially when you're new to the tradition, we want something simple to kind of hold on to, to go, okay this is it right? yeah and then now i've you. got it now <laughs> i've got it and then the second you do that it like escapes you because you're like oh no but then there's that and so right so <laughs> it's very tricky to engage with buddhism for the first time because it doesn't give you that category that we that, that satisfies us and yeah. the habit of saying okay but just tell me what the real buddhism says <laughs> it's just so i can know and then i'll let you complicate it and and it's very evasive that way. so you can yeah so the notes are also about that is about showing so if you're like a student of the tradition by reading the notes it's almost like a map to all the different kinds of texts that are out there and you start to realize how much variety the tradition actually has and just by like seeing it you'll start to get oh my god there's so much of this stuff there's no one text there's story after story after story Each story being told in its own way, with its own voice and its own language, which is why I thought then I'm invited to tell the story in my own way, in my own language, as long as I'm really clear about what I'm doing.
0: Right. And that's that's that's, and, you know, it's it is it's you said you invites you to tell the story again. And I wish more people would engage with Buddhism that way. I encourage that's why I talk about everyday Buddhism. It is about it's the kind it is experiential if it's nothing else it's it's how it works in your life and how you use it to answer your own questions. I'm not going to give you the answers. You're going to sit with the questions. Um, and
1: I really love that. That's and it remi- thing. It's a very zen thing to say. <laughs> well,
0: well, of course it is. Yeah. <laughs> yes.
1: That was great. That was also its own kind of
0: phenomenon. Yeah, well, it is. But, you know, I don't, and I, I honestly think that there's a lot of that. I I practice more in this, uh, from a Japanese Mahayana tradition, yeah. which is, and it's, it's a, it's a combo it's a it's a non-sectarian and it's a combination of uh uh zen and shin buddhism which is shin is like the the other side of the tracks buddhism that nobody seems to know about and i love to talk about it um but not here um so but anyway i really liked what you said about it invite you to tell the story again and it reminded me of a quote from stephen Batchelor in his book secular Buddhism, imagining the Dharma in an uncertain world. I put that as the intro to my book, Everyday Buddhism. And it's it, he wrote, discarding all elements of supernaturalism and magical thinking, one returns to the mystery and tragedy of the everyday sublime, which your book is totally about the everyday sublime. Instead of nirvana being located in a transcendent realm beyond the human condition, it would be restored to its rightful place at the heart of what it means each moment to be fully human. Rather than devoutly repeating this is the key, what has been said many times before, you risk expressing your understanding in your own stammering voice, unquote. And I think you did that, although you did not stammer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you you just you just did it. So I love I love that part of it. It just spoke to me. Yes, there is there are many mystical elements in this book. So don't think this is. You know to all those this is a uh, trigger warning to secular buddhists <laughs> this there is there are magical and mystical elements to this because it's coming from that culture and yes. and and vanessa is a scholar in that culture so she she understands it and there's parts where gods are looking down from the clouds and there's even parts where um uh awakened siddhartha takes uh you out out onto a cloud. And um, so there's a lot of places where, you know, you might say, oh my gosh, but it's there. It's also very, it's real from the tradition, but, and it's very, and it explains a lot and it's enjoyable if nothing else. Um, But anyway, also I wanted to talk about the woman centered part of it because that, I mean, that is really a lot of what this is about it. And you find yourself wondering. Wow, is this true? I mean, you know, I know a lot of the things you the notes. put notes there. Yeah, but not all, the notes didn't and cover it. every single thing. Um, not that I'm complaining. I, I'm sure most people wouldn't want more notes. I probably would, but um, but one example is on page one twenty eight, um, where it seems. Uh, oh, e- example of the wisdom. This is the thing that I I kept questioning. The women in this book the central character women, you know, there are a lot of peripheral women, but their central character women are so wise and so strong. And most of the time they make the men look like bumbling idiots, really. Oh, no. <laughs> no, I'm not really. It's like, because they're doing their worldly thing. And then it's the women that have this, the profound advice and then the men go along with it. But you And so you think to yourself, Well, would the man go along with that in that culture? I'm wondering. But anyway, so I'm asking this question. Um, On page 128, uh, Yishotara demonstrates a mature understanding of life. And in my case, thinking of Dharma and acceptance of the nature of suffering where siddhartha was overcome and driven by it right he was like we talked about the trauma he had and then that section after the, this was after siddhartha's like first experience this wasn't his the, the sights um you know old age sickness and death the and then th- this is the farm when they with the plow and yeah. uh um he first encountered the suffering of the oxen the farmer and the quote tiny creatures that had been cut into pieces by the plow, unquote. Um, and his own shock was sort of, that was sort of a precursor to where he was gonna go based on that shock and his grabby going out into the field and he grabs the rope of the yoke. And it's it's this whole, he's, he's like, he really blows it out of proportion. And that, that's what his wife thinks too, I think. She thinks, what's wrong with you? Um, <laughs> and she says to him, quote all creatures suffer and in some way we are surely all connected all brothers as you say because he said we're all brothers that was he had that realization that Mm -hmm. even the tiny insects were his brother um but how else could it be there is no alternative to suffering she continues husband we live we die and we suffer in between that's the natural way of things what else can there be? And then Siddhartha, he, of course, he's not awakened, so he's not the Buddha. Objects no alternative. He asks, "See what I'm saying? He's like he's like the dumb one. She's like the smart one." And Yashodhara continues, "No, I don't think there is. When women, when a woman gives birth, she suffers. When a farmer tills the land, he experiences hardship. When we eat animals, it is death itself that we are ingesting. How else can life be?" Unquote. And in my, it was like, I was so taken by that first little wise woman thing. Well, there was more before from her mother too, but we won't go there. That's the Dharma right there. You know, it's in your face, Dharma explained to the
1: Buddha by his wife. But it's not, but the thing is, so yes, she has the practical wisdom of this is life. What do you expect? Right. His question of how could you think there's no alternative? is the Dharma because, he, oh, good
0: point. Yeah, yeah, because
1: right. he's the one who finds the alternative. And so what you do have is this clash of worldviews. He's not bumbling. He really, really, he has that idealistic, I mean, Buddhism is fundamentally an idealistic tradition and right. he has this fundamental idealism in him. There's gotta be an alternative to the mundane sufferings of this life. And he, and the whole point of Buddhism is that he finds it, that he finds that mental road to freedom of suffering. And so she's telling him there will always be suffering, but he's also telling her there's a way beyond it. And so he's not bumbling at all. He is telling her, he's already at the beginnings of saying, you're just going to give in and accept suffering just because you see it everywhere. She's like us in the sense that she's dulled. She's like, this is how it is. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's telling her, no, there's got to be more. And if he didn't believe that, he would never have left to go find the answer. He would never found the answer. So he's not a bumbling fool at all. Oh, and I didn't. No, no, I know, know. But I mean, just like in terms of what I felt like I was, I was watching in their conversation was the two wisdoms colliding. One that is earthy and one yeah. is transcendentalist. And I think they're equals, right? And I have, that's what I felt the whole book is that she sees with very strong wisdom, the world in a smart way from the earth. And right. He, he's looking for more, but from a higher level or not a higher level, but from a transcendentalist perspective, and they're both right. And yeah, he and- finds his answer.
0: And yeah, and and you and actually, I meant and I was going to go on a little further. You're absolutely right. You know, he took it as this major question that he immediately started wrestling with. Right. And that that comes across in this dialogue. So I i don't want people to get the wrong idea. That yeah. I just constantly thought of him as a bumbling fool. But because um, I didn't. But it was like she then quieted down when she saw his taking it up and struggling with it mentally she's and then and then got more interested in his struggle she her tone changed i guess is what
1: you're going to say well now she begins to worry because when she sees that he's wrestling with it on that transcendental level she knows she's not part of that and so this is the beginning of the end of their relationship because if he's going to start going there he's not going to be part of the earthy world here which is where she lives yeah, He's not going to hold her hand. He's not going to be there when she gives birth. She's going to be in the world and he's going to be leaving it. And that's what's beginning to happen already.
0: Yeah. This is the, this is what I clearly marked as like the, you know, in writing, is that the denouement or whatever the, the peak of the, this is where the, this is where the, every, everything teeters, you know, yeah. and the, this is where you see her like, um terrified you know oh oh the, the astrologers were right you know <laughs> well,
1: sure this is what's haunting the story all the time is it were the astrologers right or not is he mm-hmm. going to leave or is he going to stay which one is it going to be and in the end his answer to suffering does trump hers because she's going to suffer when he goes she can't transcend that right yeah. and that's yeah. where it becomes really sad for her is that she, she wants him here and he wants to go somewhere else. And so they're, even though they've spent lifetimes together, they're at an impasse in this last life because he needs to figure something out where she figures just accept the world as it is. And he thinks, no, let's transcend it. And it hurts and she's left behind. She's really left behind. She doesn't follow him for a long time.
0: Yeah, and even in from that like one scene where I marked, it's where i see it as this yeah. the turning point is like you get the sense that he is so taken up in this thought about this you know yeah. he he's just he's so consumed by it that Absolutely. he can't even see her right there and he and i, I like it so he's almost forgotten that he's got these attachments um and it's like you don't even notice that you know i don't it's almost as if he doesn't come back to the the sense that he has those attachments and he's until he's standing on the bedroom threshold. That's yeah. how I felt about it. It's like, yeah, no, just, I think you're right. Yeah. He's Like totally self. It's almost like he's selfish. Like he's self-involved
1: in this like
0: mental struggle of what is this? What is this?
1: Well, he is absolutely. And that's where that calling part comes. It's like he is consumed with a question that he needs to answer. And that is the part of his life story that I think we can understand is when we find ourselves consumed with a challenge, an obstacle, uh, a question that we need to figure out. And he actually goes to figure out, figured it out, no matter what the cost, he needs to find the answer to suffering. He can't accept this world. He can't accept, oh, well, we just suffer and life is hard and it's painful. He needs to figure out how to make it not hard anymore. That yeah. is his quest. And that's what according to the tradition he then offers at the end but he can't offer it until he gets consumed by it he needs to he needs to go to the forest and just focus on that and have all the other distractions go away because this is more important than everything and in that sense i understand his story now whereas before i was just like how could you do that now i understand what it is to have something so important to you that you do have to leave everything behind to just sit with something that you need to resolve and it's very profound it is very
0: profound i have a question and and i think you kind of hinted at it in one of the notes but i i might i might be confused now but um in the places where you introduce the gods and i hope I, i i hope it's okay for me to Talk about this yeah okay um in the place where you introduce the gods you have them struggling with themselves um you know the the gods of the east and the west and so forth and it's, it's 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 entertaining it's it's actually almost comical but um and it's sort of like a comic relief in this area but um the the gods like like sitting on the clouds like debating about okay is now is it time for him to say old age and or and now is it time to, yeah. for him to see illness? It's like that part it was like, you know, are the texts that you have studied um, do they all port? do you know what I mean? I'm I yeah. mean, I'm struggling here. What's
1: what's my okay, question? So where anyway? are these okay, Where do these guys come from and how do they play out in the tradition? Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Okay. thank you. Um, so it was really important to me for me to put them in there at least a little bit. Um, sometimes I wanted to put in more magical stuff. I went back and forth as to how much of it I would put in the book. Um, if you look at almost from anywhere in the world almost, except Western Buddhist literature, if you look at Indian, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, you know, Tibetan, Thai, all these traditions that have taken on Buddhism and told the stories, they're very magical. It's almost impossible to open up a Buddhist text and not have gods and jeweled walkways in the sky and giant yeah, flowers right. falling from the heaven. Like it's, a, it's, it's not a secular story. It's a very magical story. And sometimes it's like you read the Lotus Sutra, there's no end to it, right? Like it's just, <laughs> it gets worse by the second it's like it's absolutely just, it's crazy stuff right
0: it's here i always say it's like an lsd trip even it or
1: is Ellie, really it's very colorful it's very blingy. it's very i actually just finished an academic book on on jewels in the buddhist imaginary because there's so, we sew it we imagine buddhism to be really austere and it's not it's crazy blingy and very colorful <laughs> and in the west it's like we've made buddhism very protestant very austere absolutely right it's very austere it's very simple everybody's wearing just like a simple suit and there's nothing else going on um (laughs) it's not actually how most of the buddhist world has engaged with these stories they have made the stories as vibrant as their own cultures full of colors and right and we've made it as as kind of plain as protestantism in a way so again you see the reflection of the culture on the text that we produce um so being someone who spends most of her time in South Asian literature, I'm used to reading Buddhist texts where it's just exploding with bling. And I needed to put some of it in the book, but I realized that if I put too much of it, the Western readers will be just like, where is she? Like, what's wrong with her? This is not how the book, right? So there's like, a, I, I realized that most of my readers are going to be in the West and they're not going to relate to that at all. On the other hand, I can't eliminate, I can't go Stephen Batchelor's route actually really disagree with Stephen. I love some of his wisdom. Oh, I'm with you on that. I'm with you. the secularization of Buddhism. I think we're losing so much of this cultural richness. Absolutely. These Buddhist gods, they're all over the place in every Chinese temple. They're actually stand at the door. (laughs) They're actually statues of them standing at the door. They are painted on walls and they're just one of thousands. You have nagas, like these like serpent deities. You have, you name it. The Buddhist imagination has it. So I just included one group (laughs) and they're not supposed to be wise and awakened. They, the gods are just like us. And that's also a big part of the Buddhist imagination is that the Buddhist universe is teeming with life, seen and unseen. Some of your readers or your, your listeners might know, um, is it, the, oh, no, it's the Metta Sutta. In the Metta Sutta, which is a really prominent Theravadan text, um, it's about loving kindness, the loving kindness sutta. Right right, 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 Loving kindness to all beings. One of the lines in the loving kindness sutta is to all the unseen and the seen beings, right? It's the, that the ones we know of and all the ones that are filling the cosmos that we don't even see. But the cosmos is literally teeming with life that we don't see. It's everywhere. And so... This is a really prominent Buddhist worldview. And all of this teeming unseen life is not awakened. It's just other kinds of, it's like us. It's like there's cockroaches and there's goats and there's humans and there's gods and there's Nagas and there's Gandharvas and there's Yaksha's and there's all over the universe. And so I just needed a little bit. Otherwise I would be unsatisfied.
0: Uh, No, that's really good because...
1: um, (laughs) because I talk about
0: this a lot as much as I think my audience can handle it because it, I don't want a, a complete listener turn off. but, um, the, the, uh, the stories in Buddhism, just in the Buddha, in the, in, in, like you talk about the Lotus Sutra and in, in, in the Mahayana Sutras are unbelievable. And if I wish more people, you know, in this, you know, and I'm with you, I, I respect Stephen Batchelor, but I don't agree with him in most cases, um, because I think it actually, this kind of stuff leads to this mindfulness stuff that we're turning it into something totally, um, appropriating some of the techniques of Buddhist meditation without even understanding where all of this came from and without the richness of stories, you know, we're storytelling te- people and the fact that, you know, if you, we, I don't think you really understand Buddhism unless you allow yourself to explore some of these sutras. Y- you yeah. Know? Well, I think
1: that's really, I think um, I don't think Stephen Batchelor would ever adhere to the mindfulness stuff. I think he's much more. No, I, Yeah, no, I know. And I realize you're saying that I just want to emphasize it for the, I think you're absolutely right. Um, but I do think that by stripping and trying so hard to make Buddhism, this kind of secular philosophy, I think, we are in danger of losing some of the best stuff that Buddhism has to offer. And Buddhism is not just about mindfulness and mindfulness is not just about the moment because the moment doesn't even really exist because it's gone before it's happened, right? I don't really quite know what the moment is all the time when people (laughs) talk about that. Um, Buddhism is also, it's about an engaged imagination. It's It's about kindness. It's about extending yourself. And part of that extension of oneself is through the imagination, by understanding others and by imagining other beings and imagining that we're not alone in the world. It's not as individualistic as we have made it out to be. And I think by having these really, I I wish people would talk about Buddhism as being fabulous. I think I, I really do. I feel like bling and fabulous should be like the immediate hashtags to anything that is Buddhist. I think it would challenge us in a much more interesting way that there's this fabulous realm of the imagination that pushes us to extend our kindness, to extend our awareness, to imagine that we're not alone in the world, that, there's, that, that everything is vaster and bigger than the individual self. And it's not just about the fellow human beings you see walking on the street, it's, it's anything you can imagine extends compassion towards right? That the, the universe teeming with possibility. The, the idea, so many Western Buddhists want to get rid of reincarnation and past lives yep, and I understand I mean. the logic of it. And I understand the discomfort. Uh, I don't know that I buy any of it, but the concept of having reincarnation means that a, it tells you, you've got to be patient. If it took the Buddha a hundred thousand lifetimes to get to where he was, you know, and most of us can't even overcome our habit of chocolate, know in one lifetime (laughs) maybe we need to be a bit more patient and a little less rushed about this whole process that we're participating in which then leads us to be a little bit kinder that this is all this is an extended vast slow process that goes on forever and everyone you've ever known you've known them before and there's no strangers and every unseen being you've seen them in another lifetime like that we've all been connected and so it, it releases the weight of the individual moment and the individual life in really beautiful ways that no philosophy I think can really ever get you to, but a story will get you to it and imagination will get you to it. So I, I do think putting the gods in there and imagining unseen beings and just kind of opening it up, the idea that they were you know, married and lovers for lifetimes, not just this, last, like all of this, makes everything bigger. And I yeah, think it's
0: important. yeah, you know, and I was going to talk about that. It's like um, y- you it's something I think Buddhist practitioners over, especially ones that are new to Buddhism or haven't read any sutras except for um you know some of the original sutras in the Pali ca- Canon, but you know i mean i'm 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 no scholar i'm i i do not even pretend to be one i'm i don't play one on podcasts i just play one i don't play
1: one, <laughs> I,
0: <laughs> I, don't play one. <laughs> I just i just am a, a everyday practitioner but um i remember the first time i read um uh the the Pure Land Sutras uh, it was mm-hmm. it, it, it was I I was a t- practicing Tibetan you know and Tibetan Buddhism is like crazy man it's like uh, it's like crazy I would have people come in we would have people come into our Dharma Center and like freak out and run away because of the tankas of all these you know crazy beings all over the world it's fab it is fabulous it's, it's beautiful fabulous. and it's fabulous and and but because like I think you put it so perfectly it's like because we come from this Protestant worldview we we just think this is like unbelievable uh, no way I'm not going there <laughs> no it ain't happening I want it simple I
1: yeah want I
0: want and why are you prostrating to this statue and you know it's just sure. it's just there's just so much push and pull and tug and 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 everybody wants it their own doggone way without under without engaging in the story at all like you you hit the nail on the head when you use the word patience the, yeah. i mean i i've actually i think you you know you could preach about the pen pand- you'd be a great buddhist teacher by the way you could <gasps> preach about the pandemic i mean it's like Everybody wants to go back to the way it was, and they, they don't understand how all these things are interconnected. And, you know, do you know what I mean? Is you yeah. and it's you talked about this on that Bloomsbury uh, podcast, and you talked about um, uh, the cosmic nature of Indian storytelling. And that's the thing, it's that Indian mind. It's not something I think Americans or Westerners in general have a real hard time grasping that it's like, um, I love like Nagarjuna. I read Nagarjuna. He's very hard to read, but it's
1: very,
0: <laughs> very hard to read, but I learn a lot from Nagarjuna and I always talk about, well, you know, he got his, he got his wisdom from, um, the, the dragons, you know, and people are like looking at me like, <laughs> they're, they're, what are you talking? Do you believe that? Really? I, said, I don't know. I, maybe he did. I don't know, but it, it's really cool wisdom. And where did he get that, you know? But anyway, you were talking about sort of this cosmic nature, this circular rather than linear and all these lifetimes And you know, if you can allow yourself to just go there, you know, people talk about using psychedelics, you know, well, what is it they're looking for? If you just get engaged in a good Buddhist story, you're there, right? Isn't, aren't you there? Yeah. And it, it does build more compassion and it does build more patience and it it takes you outside of your own little stupid self and your own little stupid everyday stories. And it's just wonderful. So I think especially the bigness of it um, is something we could really use in where we are at this precipice of climate change and, you know, we're just, we're, we're just nothing really. And we think we're everything.
1: Um, Would you like to say more about that? Or is there any more to say? Um, I think, I mean, I, I do feel like I want to say that I, I understand why we went Protestant about this, why we want something simple and there is, there can be beauty in that as well. Um, I just, I think sometimes when we want to secularize Buddhism, we're doing it because we're uncomfortable maybe uncomfortable with the imagination or uncomfortable with the idea that we'd have to adopt ideas that we didn't come up with or that aren't our native to our understanding of the world. And that maybe we have to let go a little bit and if nothing else, and we don't have to take on the imagination that comes from South Asia or whatever else, we certainly don't, um, whoever the we is. But um, I think we have to be able to at least try to understand why it's there and what purpose it might serve and not just dismiss it all, right? And I think that's what happens with the mindfulness that you were referring to, is that there's a sense that all of this imagination is a waste of time, it's hocus pocus, it's a perversion, it's a corruption, that the real Buddhism is just mindfulness, real Buddhism is just meditation, right? There's this sense of prioritizing in a hierarchy of what's important, and what's not. And that's where I think we've made a mistake. Right? because if at the end of the day, we're going to be more comfortable with a more or some Western Buddhists are going to be more comfortable with a simplified Buddhism with a kind of more stripped down that's fine. But to say that this is the real Buddhism and everything else is a corruption. It's very hurtful and it doesn't allow us to appreciate how other cultures find these traditions serve us right, so I think if we're going to have any appreciation, we have to be able to enjoy. How other parts of the Buddhist world have engaged, and not dismiss it all as "oh, that's just mumbo jumbo," right? Or whatever term—I don't even know what mumbo jumbo means—but <laughs> because it's just, it's just um, a ruined part of Buddhism, and it's too much stuff, right? And and Tibetan Buddhism is a lot of stuff. If any tradition has a lot of stuff, it's definitely the Tibetan tradition. But what does it do to the imagination to fill it with all that stuff, right? What happened? Like that's that's where. We have to be more curious. What happens to the imagination when you see all those gods and you see all those beings and or you hear that Nagarjuna was talking to these um, snake beings under the earth and that's where he (laughs) got his wisdom, right? What does it do to the imagination to wonder in that way, right? What happens to us? And I do think wonderful things can happen to the mind when you let it expand. And I think there's something for us to be curious about and to let ourselves be invited in We don't have to take everything. We don't have to accept everything. We will always have our own comfort, but I do think we need to be a bit more curious about the Buddhist world than just the parts that make us comfortable because if nothing else, Buddhism is about getting uncomfortable. Um, So what happens when the cosmos gets bigger? I've always thought that if, if I took on the idea that we've all been reincarnated a million times, and there's so many beings in the cosmos, and we've all been reincarnated so many times, then it must mean that I've met everybody before, which means I have no, there's no one to worry. I I know everybody, (laughs) right? Like there's, everyone's familiar because if I didn't meet you in this life, I met you in a past life. So we must be friends at some point, or maybe we were terrible enemies and we have to work it out, whatever it is, there's no strangers. And even if that's all fantasy, what a wonderful thing to do with the mind to imagine that everyone's familiar. Yeah it's, it, a, well, it's you know like know I mean? the, it's like the
0: bodhisattva practices is everyone's your mother everyone's exactly. been your mother so oh, so uh, have uh, kind of gratitude
1: to every
0: yeah and and you know that's a hard thing to explain i do that prayer in my sangha it's um beautiful. it's be- it is beautiful and that's why i do it it's like and i and some people object and it's like you know you don't have to believe it or take it hooked line. but don't throw it away just well, let let your, right. let your being play with it for a while and see where it goes. That's, right? I think
1: that's beautiful. Is the idea that we should be playing with these ideas that I do think so many Buddhist civilizations have been playing with and see what happens when we play with it. What happens to us and our imaginations when we take on an idea, like every person was our mother or every being, right, was our mother in a past. Be curious about what that does. And I think that's really exciting. So yeah. I just I I had to have a little bit of that fiddling around in the book because <laughs> it was so natural to me that there'd be more things floating around than just the humans.
0: Yes, and and you know just and and that's why this book that's why it's, this book is such a wonderful it's it's not just. And I don't, I shouldn't say just, that's a terrible way to put it. Um, (laughs) It's, it's, I just, I just heard myself say that it's not, uh, it's not just a novel. Okay. Because I know a lot of people like, you know, why would I want to read a made up story about Buddhism? Right. Um, And, and that's, and, and it's like, well, you want to read it because all the themes of Buddhism that you know, like interbeing, interrelationship, the bigness of everything—that everyone's your mother—it's all there because you refer to it, and and and, and you know they they talk about it. Yashodara talks about how they've been husband and wife for for oh, forever. I mean, it, it it comes up in this story, and 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 it's like so. And then you realize that, well, this is not a story. This is part of all the texts. I mean, and sure. then maybe it expands people's understanding of Buddhism in, in a more playful way instead of being threatened by it. And I think that's why this, the way you've done it is so wonderful.
1: Um, I've always thought, I mean, thank you. Um, I was raised on stories, many of which were untrue. Uh, I only found out as I got <laughs> older. <laughs> mother lied to me constantly (laughs) and told me all kinds of fabulous things. And I never quite was able to figure out what our history was because she just made everything fabulous. And so I was raised on an imagination and I never, I, I, I had to stop worrying about what was true and what wasn't true and just enjoy what happened to my imagination when I listened to the stories. And so I've always been fascinated by stories. I've always played around with them. And I've always found, even when I teach, I find in my classroom, if I'm giving a theory, my students will kind of look at me and some of them will have blank stares and some of them will be scribbling and some of them will be sleeping. And then if I change beats and I tell a story, everybody wakes up. And so I know that stories reach us in ways that theory doesn't, very few of us can really be nourished by philosophy. Most of us do better on a good story. We all have been raised on stories, all of us, whether it's a story on TV or it's a story someone told us, but we remember stories, right? And we understand them and we can look at them and see different things at different Like They become really rich to us in a way that a philosophical statement I, harder to engage with.
0: Yeah, there's two things I want to say that go and then you can reply to that if you want. But I think that's a great way to end because stories are important to all uh, all of the human experience, let alone religion or spiritual practice. But I remember when I first came to Tibetan Buddhism and I went to the center director and when we and and I was like, I was like totally didn't get visualization. I'm a verbal person, so visualization was like, are you kidding me? Um, sure. it's, and and I'm like, you know, if we're trying to see things as they are and and try why am I making up this wild nonsense <laughs> and putting myself into it? And that and it was like this was my constant struggle for a long time until I f- finally un- understood what the point was you know his answer I think at the time was it goes to show you how you're making up stuff around you all the time and how as easily as you can materialize this visualization okay. you could easily dematerialize it but right. yet at the same time if you engage in it it changes you
1: that's
0: right right Perfect. and and, and, and so he was very wise. Um, he's, but, uh, the other thing is, is that, um, oh no, of course I forgot. I'm having a <laughs> moment. Uh, <laughs> oh my, oh my, my, but anyway, stories, they're very important. And I'm just going to leave it at that is like, this is why you should you know, well, actually, uh, the other thing I was, what got me to Buddhism as a young child, my older brother, who was 10 years older than me, who isn't at all a Buddhist, religious or spiritual, gave me Herman Hesse's book. Oh. And it changed my life completely. I felt as if that was like my, well, sort of like my destiny. It was like, I, I think I was like 10 and he, I was a reader and he, he said, read this. And he came back from the Vietnam War. Um, oh, wow. And and well, he wasn't in he wasn't in combat. He he was stationed as a support personnel in Thailand. But that's how he got into the Southeastern Asian way of thinking. And he thought I'd like um, Siddhartha. And boy, did I li- and so he loves to tell the story. I'm the one that made my sister Buddhist. <laughs> so so anyway, it was the story. See what happens? Yeah, that was so. We are.
1: I, I think we're a lot less abstract than we give ourselves credit for. I think we, we love stories. We love other people. We, like, we, like, are, we need to engage with the world. I, don't, I think there are people who can really get excited about philosophical ideas as they stand on their own. Um, I know some people who are like that, who really just love the philosophical idea just on its own as this kind of almost puritanical experience. Most of us, though, we get alive when we hear a story, we remember stories, we remember a story someone tells us we remember an experience because it's related to a story we it, 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 it inhabits our bodies, just like other people do, you know, like we it's tangible, it's real to us, and it stays with us. And I think, I think when engaging with Buddhism, one of the best ways to really understand what is at the heart of it is to really hear it's stories. And maybe not have to worry so much about the doctrine. Maybe just listen to the stories. When you go listen to a sermon in any Buddhist countries, they all tell stories. They sit up there, all the monks and the nuns, they sit up there and they, you know, lean forward like an old grandparent and they tell you a story. That's that's what everybody does. And I think in yeah. the West, we're trying so hard to be puritanical about it, like we're trying so hard. And maybe we could try a little less hard and just listen to the story and see
0: what it does to us yeah and one more thing um in reading your book i was so engaged in it i was dreaming about it that's oh, what stories do that's, what that's what's that's what story i was dreaming about it and i would wake up to go to the bathroom and i think oh my gosh am i dreaming <laughs> <laughs> dreaming about this book i was it was it was the wedding i was dreaming that i was somehow part of the wedding scene oh, um okay. like looking at it i wasn't in part of it it was just looking at you know dreams are very weird but it was so beautiful and colorful and you know that you the 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 description of the clothing and this and that I it was uh you know I think it just captivated the imagination and I kind of think that's why do people binge on Netflix in a pandemic right
1: great story (laughs)
0: it's right so Vanessa is there something else I should have asked you Oh, it was a wonderful conversation. Thank you. you. Okay. Um, so we'll just say thank you, thank you, thank you for being on my podcast. Thank you for your wonderful book. And please everyone try it, even if you're I'm not a fiction reader generally. Like like I like I told you, I read Nagarjuna. So what the heck? I mean, so so but I'm but I would I think everybody would get so much out of it if they read this book. So thank you for being part of it and explaining, doing a deep dive on how it all came about.
1: It was my pleasure. Thank you so much, Wendy.
0: Thank you. That's it for this episode. I'm sure you enjoyed the conversation and Vanessa as much as I did. It was one of the most enjoyable conversations I've had as a podcast host. If you didn't figure that out already from my giggling, um, And don't forget that you can join me and others in the private donation-supported Everyday Sangha that meets virtually via Zoom every other week on Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time. The Sangha just started a study of the Diamond Sutra, so if you'd like to join the Sangha at the start of a new study and practice, now would be a good time. And please consider supporting the efforts of this podcast and related groups by becoming a community member for $5 a month. If you do, you will have access to blogs, members-only podcasts, an education series or two, a private Facebook group, and our new Introduction to Buddhism class. The first cohort of the new intro course is almost done, but we're actually, actually it's in its last class, but look for it to start again tentatively at the beginning of June. The class is free to members of the everyday Buddhism community and the everyday Sangha. If you don't follow me or the Every, or everyday Buddhism on any of the social media platforms Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, go to the everyday Buddhism website and join the membership community if you're not already a member of the community or of the everyday Sangha. You can go to www.everyday-buddhism.com and click on the tab that says, quote, join community or Sangha, unquote. And you can join the Sangha there too, if you prefer. You can, when you join the Sangha, you're already an automatic member of the membership community. I can't stress enough how thankful I am to those of you who donate and or join our groups. Since I do not seek podcast sponsors and do not ask for membership financial commitments to any of the groups or the podcast, my work and the cost of the infrastructure needed to support what I do is entirely self-funded except for your donations. So thanks again. And thanks, too, to all of you who write in with comments and questions. I do read everything, but I can't always respond. And another way you can help the podcast is to rate and review it on your favorite podcast platform. It's important to share the podcast with others if you find it helpful in your life. And if you could, take a minute to comment so people will know why you love everyday Buddhism. And if you like this podcast and aren't already aware, I wrote a book in the same everyday style called Everyday Buddhism, Real Life Buddhist Teachings and Practices for Real Change. Look for it on Amazon. And if you've read it, please take a minute to rate and review. Okay, that's it for all the announcements this time. And until next time, keep finding ways to make yours and everyone's days better.